continue in the teachings that we've been doing over the last few weeks now, uh, going back to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 5, we are told that the Macedonian church not only gave, okay, let me read it correctly, and not only as we had hoped, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and then to us by the will of God. We've been teaching over this past few weeks now on stewardship and giving. And then more recently, we've been talking about grace giving. So I'm going to pick it up this morning from what I left off last week on grace giving. And we defined grace giving as giving according to how God has prospered us. We say that at WorkFan, we believe that we are called to be grace givers. We do not give out of obligation. We do not give out of necessity. We do not give out of compulsion. But we give as a response of gratitude to God who has prospered us. So I say, if anybody should ask you, what is our philosophy about giving at WorkFine? It's simply that we are grace givers. And being a grace giver means I give according as to how God has blessed or prospered me. Amen. Now, towards the ends of the message last week, I showed us examples or give us reasons why people were able to freely give to God without reservation. Uh, we looked at the life of David, who gave, according to him, in 1 Chronicles chapter 29, according to the affection that he had for the house of God. Uh, we look at Zacchaeus, who in the scriptures, the Bible said, Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house, and told Zacchaeus that he will abide, that he must stay there or abide there. Not a transient going and coming, but rather a habitation. And uh, as a result of that, Zacchaeus responded to God without any prompting, without any teaching on finance, without any duress. He said, whoever I've defrauded, I'm going to pay them back. And I'm going to give a fourth of his goods, I think he said. So we see that as a, an encounter of God's love, people respond in a particular kind of way. And so this morning, I want to pick it up from there. How do I and you become a God lover? What has to take place in our lives to where we become God lovers? You see, because once we become God lovers, number one, we will be like the Macedonian believers, we will be able to give ourselves freely to God. And that's where it starts. There is no way I can respond to God in my finance if I don't first respond to God in my life. 
it is as a result of you giving your life over to God. And I'm not talking about being born again. There are many born again believers who have not given their lives. Nominally in their mind, they say they're born again. And they may be born again. But in their lifestyle, they are still making earthly bound choices. They are still choosing them, themselves first and God last. But when we make that transition to where we become God lovers, then God takes preeminence. Every decision we make, every choice we make, everything we do, God becomes number one. We, we just choose him. And as a, result of, of, as a result of choosing him, then finance is, is, is very tiny, very small compared to when you give your life to God. Amen? So let's just talk about that this morning for a few minutes. How do we become God lovers? Now, let me start with something in Revelation chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, this scripture, let me just read it, Revelation 2, 4. This is Jesus here in the book of Revelation. Okay, let me read verse 1 to, to give the context. Revelation 2, 1. I'm sorry. Thanks, guy. To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write. This is interesting. And I wanted to read this verse because you need to see, first of all, that the church that Jesus is addressing is the Ephesians church. That's the same book we're going to be studying in January. This is important. You get this. You see this. To this church at Ephesus, what is so big about Ephesus? This is the same church that Paul wrote to to break down the details of our identity and our position in Christ. Don't forget that. This is the church to which Paul said, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Don't forget that. This is the church that Paul said, you are accepted in the beloved. Don't forget that. This is the church that Paul said, we are saved because of the riches of God's grace. Don't forget that. And on and on and on it goes. But now give me verse 5. Give me verse 5. Revelation 2, 5. Remember, well, you know what, maybe I should read verse 4. <sighs> it's so much to this whole thing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Let's go back to verse 4. Thank you. <sighs> Who's Who there this morning? Man, praise God. Hallelujah. You're doing very well. <laughs> These guys, before I could say it, bang, it's on. Praise God. Amen. Verse 4 says, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember we're talking about becoming a God lover? And to this church in the book of Revelation, Jesus is speaking and he says to them, you have faith, you have patience, you uh, see your works, on and on and on and on. He commends them. And then in verse 4 he says, nevertheless, I have this against you. What is this that you have against us? That you have left your first love. Now, traditionally, the church would define this 
as the fact that you remember a bad day when you first got born again, how much you were on fire for God, how much you love God. Remember, Dr. Onofiak, how much you love Jesus in first gun of the games. You went to Bible study, prayer meetings, you fasted all the time. You won souls. You were on fire. And when we consider that in the realm of the natural, it makes sense. But is that really what God is saying? If I should say to you, That I remember when I first met my wife. The warm and fuzzy feeling. The dates and the things we did together and the things we shared together. And how much, wow, I was head over heels in love. And hopefully likewise. Hopefully, it was not just a one-way street love. <laughs> but if I was to say to you, you know what? I want to return to my first love to my wife. Would that really describe where we are 40 years later? Think about that. Because 40 years later, the capacity to love has grown. Our hearts have gotten bigger together. 40 years later, we have loved each other more deeply. You know why? Because we've been through life together. Many disagreements, many arguments, many fun times, many down times, sickness, oh, hardship, obstacles, 40 years later does not make the heart grow less fonder. So if I was to say to you, I want to return to my first love for my wife, no, I'm shortchanging myself. Because the first love to my wife has no depth. Has no history. Hasn't gone through life together. Haven't done life together. That is not what Jesus was referring to. Couldn't be. Because if I was to return to my first love for Jesus... Yes, it was wonderful love. I ran to the altar. I wept. I'm born again. But that love has not been tested. Oh, my God. Years later, we have chased demons together. We have seen healings together. We've been on a mountaintop together. We've been on a valley floor together. We've been through hardships together. I have been tested and now, yes, later I can say, yes, I was, was blind, but now I can see. I can say, yes, Jesus indeed truly loves me. Why? Because there's been history. 
I've seen his, his constance. I've seen his faithfulness. I've seen him over and over when I thought it was over, reach down and bring me up and set my feet on the Mary clay. Hallelujah! So the first love to which Jesus was recalling the Ephesians' attention was not the love of their salvation that, okay, I got born again. Yeah, I no! That word first in the Greek or first love, if you will, in the Greek, is the word proton agape. Proton. P-R-O-T-O-N. Proton agape. Which simply means foremost. Foremost love. Or if you will, primary love. So Jesus was sent to this efficiency. You have stopped resting. You are now thriving. You are now striving. You are the ones to which I sent my apostle to write to you about your position in Christ, where you are seated in him, where you've been accepted in the beloved. You are the ones that I wrote to to let you know your, how much I love you, how much by the riches of my grace I've saved you. You didn't work for that. It was, uh, it was undeserved, unmerited. Why now are you striving to be in my favor, your prayers as a result of your trust. My God. In other words, they have stopped resting. Now they are striving. And the message was they had lost their understanding of God's love for them. Their works that they were commended for were now based on their love for God rather than his love for them. Ah, no, no, you just missed it big time. You didn't hear what I just said. Everything they were doing in the church was as a result of their love for God rather than God's love for them. They were striving rather than resting. Do you understand that? I wonder if Jesus was to physically come to our prayer meetings. How will he perceive our praying? Are we praying from a striving perspective or are we praying from the resting perspective? So the issue here is, if you and I are to become God lovers, we must resolve the issue of our first love. You must be acutely reminded of your first love. What is your first love? 1 John 4, 7. Which simply says, give it to me, please. Why you guys put my name on the overhead? I know my name. But Rosie, this your guys are something else, man. <laughs> Praise God. First John, first of all. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is of God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 10. Give me verse 10. He who does not love God. Okay. Verse 10. Thank you. In this is love. 
Not that we love God, but that he loved us. That is our first love. That is our first love. That is the primary love. That is the foremost love. If you miss this, you cannot respond in love. 1 John 4, 4.19. If you are going to be a God lover, you must first get this. 1 John 4.19. We love him because he first loved us. This is where it starts. This is the first love. His love towards me and you is the foremost love, is the primary love, is the proton agape. Everything else is a response to this. So if I don't have this, I have nothing to respond to. So in order to become a God lover, I first must be rooted and grounded in the proton agape. The foremost love, the primary love. How do I become grounded, grand, grounded in this? Go with me to Psalms 103. Psalms 103. You can begin from verse 1. Huge. Because remember how we got here? We got here because we're trying to become God lovers so we can respond to God by giving ourselves to him and then thereafter being able to give of our substance. That's how we got here. But we cannot be a God lover if I don't have the primary love, the foremost agape, the Father God first loved me. Psalms 103 verse 1. How do I become a God lover? I'm glad you asked. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Notice what David said here. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is without me. Ah, are you sure? But I trust you, you say that? Is it, is it within me or without me? Aha. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within. Within. Bless the Lord. Anytime it's used towards God means praise God. Praise the Lord. So the psalmist says, praise the Lord. And all that's within me. Why within me? Because everything God has done for you and I, it's within, not without. If any man be in Christ Jesus, it's a new creation. Does the color of your skin change? No. Does your height change? Does your size, if you wear size 10, does it change to 11 or 12? No. Everything he does is within. The moment you get born again, you are a changed individual. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, it's a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Where is the newness? Inside. Your heart. So if you are to bless God, you are not looking for external stimuli. In order to praise God or to bless God. If you are looking for externals to do so, you may never do it. You are in traffic jam. You are not making enough money. There's a repair that's needed on your car. Something's happening with your home. There are enough reasons on the outside for which you and I cannot respond to God. 
So the psalmist is saying to you, forget what's going on on the outside. Why? Because everything God has done from you begins from the inside out. So my response to God must always come from within me to outside of me. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is in the inside of me. What is in the inside of me? God. God resides in the inside of me. You make a choice of your own will that you will activate what God has already placed within you. It's the inside. So while things may not be looking rosy on the outside, you know that everything is fine on the inside. So you are calling on that which is inside of you to respond to what God is doing in your life. Bless the Lord, O my son, and all that is within me. Whether you see it or not, it's within you. Whether you feel it or not, it's within you. Whether you know it or not, it's within you. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1, you've been blessed with all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. Where's heaven? Inside of you. Did you know that? Oh my God, that's a big one. You guys are not answering with confidence. Where's heaven? I hope you're not waiting for Boeing to design an aircraft that will take you to heaven. Thank God for Boeing. Thank God for NASA. But they will not fly you to heaven. Heaven is inside of you. Did you know that? Oh, you did not know that. <laughs> you are carrying heaven inside of you. Yeah. Now, so let's, give, let's, let's go on. Verse 2. Verse 2. Bless the Lord, oh my soul. How do I become a God lover? I keep myself reminded of the benefits. Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Now, when I first began this message a few weeks ago, I told you two ways that scriptures are written. I said to you that scriptures can be descriptive, in which case it describes a situation to you, or it can be prescriptive, in which case it instructs you on what to do. This verse is prescriptive. Forget not. It's a charge. Based on what's going on around you, worldwide, you will never bless God because of what sin has done to God's creation. So God says, in order for you to bless me and to praise me, I want you to keep before you, never forget that you have benefits in me. Yes. Forget not. Look at the next word there. All, A-L-L, -L, not just one. All of his benefits. For many of us, when we get hired on a job, you see them with HR. They give you an employment package. Your pay, they tell you what your pay is. They tell you your vacation time. And they begin to line up for you all your benefits. Am I correct about that? Is anybody here employed? For some of us, we know more about the benefits than we know about the job. <laughs> because definitely you don't want to. So God is saying, don't forget the benefits. 
you have a benefit. You see, there's something about covenant. Our God is a covenantal God. There are three components to every covenant. Number one, there's a benefactor. Number two, there are benefits within the covenant. And number three, there are beneficiaries. So here God says, don't forget the benefits. When he said that, he's thinking of his covenant with you. There are benefits to you as a result of this covenant. And you should not forget them. Because if you forget them, you will forget my first love. Because you must remember it is the love of God that prompted God to give us the benefits. Bless the Lord of my soul and forget not all his benefits. Next verse. The very first benefit he mentions is the forgiveness of our sins. The pardon of sin was the very first thing David mentioned. This is mentioned first, not in a haphazard way, not in a careless way, but because David recognizes, and we should also recognize, that the chief reason we don't receive good from God is because of sin. Before the fall in the garden, there was no reason for any petition for any blessings from God. They were all freely given. And so when sin is forgiven, we are restored back to God's favor, which ensures good things for us. So David was acutely reminded of God's pardon. Recognizing the hindrance and the obstacle that sins have caused to mankind. So number one on this list of benefit is the sense of the fact God I know and I'm grateful, I'm thankful that you've forgiven me of my sins. And if you look at that verse very well, it says forgives all your iniquity. Forgives, present continuous. Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. He didn't say forgave. Forgives. He did it and he keeps on doing it. I was forgiven yesterday. I'm forgiven today. Before tomorrow comes, I'm already forgiven. That is liberating. That in itself is liberation. Who forgives all your iniquities? And who heals all your diseases? Now, it's interesting that it connected iniquity with disease. Because he realizes that one stroke of Jesus is going to the cross. Not only takes care of sins, but all the sickness that associated with sins. Because he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for iniquity. And a price for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes, we were healed. Same act on the cross brought our salvation, pardon of sins, and healing for our souls. So David says, don't forget these benefits. 
Does a day go by in your life that you don't thank God for your salvation? In this day that we live in, it's very possible. Some of us, we don't remember that we're saved until the next Sunday when we come back to church. No, seriously. We're not thinking about it. But for David, it's not so. He realized that had it not been for God's grace and his mercy, he would have been destroyed. And so he reminds himself constantly, for God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son for me. Not just 316, make it personal. How God so loved me that he gave his only begotten son for me. If you keep on saying that to yourself and you meditate on that, it will change your outlook. It will change your outlook. Forget not his benefits. How he forgives our iniquities, he heals our diseases. Verse 4. Verse 4. Who redeems your life from destruction. That key word is the word redeem. That word implies there was a cost. So not only are you grateful that you are saved and are through your salvation, healing is coming. There's a, a the, the word redeems my soul from destruction. That's, I, I'm reminding myself that what I have did not come freely to me. I received it freely, but it cost him everything. There's a cost. My goodness. So I'm, I have a sense of gratitude. I realize that what I have is not just something that I just went out there and got. No, someone paid a dear price for me to have it. He redeemed my soul from destruction. And I'm sure when David was saying that, his mind would have been flooded for all the times he was in battle. As a young boy fighting Goliath, where everybody said, you are finished, it's over. You will not survive this. You are stupid. Why are you going to do a thing like this? And God delivered him. Amen. Hallelujah. Has God delivered anyone from anything in this room? Car accidents, sicknesses, relational issues that you said, God, I thank you. I'm alive today because of your mighty deliverance. Hallelujah. He delivers us all from destruction. The Bible says the devil comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But Jesus said, I have come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. If it's not for him, where would you be? Where would you be? He redeems us so, uh, your life from destruction. Next it says, who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies? Oh my God. Can you imagine the Queen of England sitting on her, on her throne? If you ever walked into the room where she was sitting on her throne, the, the thing that would strike immediately that would distinguish her from all the other women that may be in that room is because she'll have a crown on her head. That crown immediately tells you that in this room there was just one person of huge preeminence and significance. The one wearing the crown. So the Bible is now saying that God crowns you. Hey, Mama Hendarakabaha. God crowns you. So we are looking at you in a room of all kinds of folks. And when we enter that room and we look at you, ah, this is the one with the crown. Immediately, we know there's something peculiar. 
we know there's something special. We know that this one is chosen. We understand that God, that there is, there is something about this one that is crowned. So not just being crowned, but look at it. What with what? Not diamonds. Diamonds has a price. You can name the price of a diamond. I don't care if it's 20 carat diamond. I don't care how much a carat is. It has a price. But God said, I'm going to crown you with loving kindness. Can you price that for me, sir? Can you take, can you go to Saks Fifth Avenue and say, I want to buy loving kindness? My God, what kind of credit card would you require to pay for loving kindness? This is a gift that is so in a sock stable. You, can, you cannot estimate how much it's worth. I'm going to crown you with loving kindness. From everlasting to everlasting, I'm loving you. But as if that is not enough, I know you live in the realm of the earth. And therefore, from time to time, you will err. You will do something wrong. You will fall into sin. You will make a big mistake. So I'll not only crown you with loving kindness, but I'll also crown you with tender mercies. Hey, for those moments when you go astray, my tender mercies will be there as a crown on your head to remind you, you are mine. Hallelujah. I don't know about you guys, but I've needed some tender mercies in my life. My God, I've been to some places, said some things, seen some things for which I needed God's tender mercies. I don't know about you guys, man, but I'm telling you, it's loving kindness and it's tender mercies and a crown on your head. And so David said, listen, remember these benefits. These benefits, nobody can take them away from you. It forgives your iniquities. It heals your diseases. It redeems your soul from destruction. It can't, it can't, you're, you're, you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Verse 5. It satisfies your mouth with good things. Hear that. It satisfies your mouth with good things. Just looking across this room, many of you, years ago, if you get a hot dog to eat, you are lucky. Now you are eating good things. You've been promoted from Piccadilly restaurant. Now you go to fish and you go to all these nice places to eat. Hello? Back in those days, for many of you, all your meal can be put in one plate. <laughs> you were fortunate to get a one-course meal. Now, it satisfies your mouth with good things. You eat now, you have five course meals. You just don't drink water. You have, you have okay, ah, what are, is it five alive? Is it Coke? Is it Diet Pepsi? Is it, the choices are too much. Is it tonic water? Is it soda water? I mean, on and on. You don't just drink regular tap water. Ah, no. Back in those days, tap water, you're lucky. You're fortunate. Now. You go to Publix. Okay, I don't want uh, Nestle. I don't want uh, Aquafina. Give me a uh, Callaway. Give me this. Give me that. You are drinking designer water. <laughs> designer water. Can you imagine that? Why? He has satisfied your mouth with 
good things. Some of us years ago, our shopping for Christmas was at the flea market. You will argue back and forth, ah, it's $10, no, make it $9.99, make it $6, ah, $4. Finally, at $2.99, you carry it, you, take, you go home, you're satisfied. Flea market shopping. Now you've been promoted. Hallelujah. You've been promoted. Hallelujah. Now, I see you guys now, Discovery Mall. Yeah. <laughs> I see you now, Nima Marcos. Ah, Nima Marcos, you! <laughs> Saks Fifth Avenue, whoa! You go online, you shop now. There's no shopping online at flea markets. <laughs> Why? Because God has satisfied your mouth with good things. Amen. Hallelujah. Promotion has come. Hallelujah. God has promoted you. And because God has made your life less stress-free, yes. he renews your youth as the ego. Yes. These are benefits. Yes. That should remind us of why we are God lovers. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you? When you remind yourself of these things on a regular basis, it helps you understand how much God has loved you. Yes. And it is the revelation of his love to you that turns you around to respond to him back in love. Amen. Amen. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore, by the mercies of God, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, that you present yourselves as a living sacrifice. In other words, as a result of all these benefits, because of what God has already done for you, I challenge you, present your lives as a living sacrifice. That's what Paul says. Holy, acceptable, which is what your reasonable, this is the least, this is the, this is the least you can do for God. That's what he's saying. All right. Let me make one last point and we're going to close. So I've showed you that love is the motivation for giving. Over these last several weeks, we've shown that love is the motivation for giving. There's one other motivation. And I just want to touch on that very quickly. And we're going to go. Go with me to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. Verse 21. Matthew chapter 22. Verse 21. Okay, let's start from verse 20. Matthew 22 verse 20. Ah, I'm sorry, verse 19. That one is on me. Ha, ah, verse 18. <laughs> Let's start someone's hand. <laughs> now we got it. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Verse 18. 
But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, why do you test me? You hypocrites. I won't say it, but I almost want to say that to anybody. I come and ask you, should we tithe or not? I almost want to say that what Jesus just said. Because when people are asking these questions, they're setting you up. They don't want truth. Whoever wants truth, they need to listen. They need to hear the whole message. Not just a pointed question to put you in a corner and nail you. Yeah. So verse 19, Jesus says, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, which is a coin. And he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Now, time will not permit me. I need to move very quickly because I've, 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 I've spent all of my time really. What is he just, what's happening here? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? Jesus said, bring me a coin. I don't want to miss this point while I'm, mixed, while I'm, while I'm establishing this, this particular uh, thing here. Do you notice when we talk about tithing, we say we pay tithe and not give tithes? Yes. Anything you have to pay is an obligation of which there are cons consequences if we don't pay. Case in point, if I don't pay my mortgage, what happens? U-Haul territory. You'll be renting U-Haul boxes. That's what that means. If you don't pay your card note, what happens? You're gonna see the repo guy. And they come empowered to take that which you failed to pay. So when I say I don't pay tithe, there's a connotation right there of a consequence. And you and I have already clearly established that tithing under the law has expired. Why? Because Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 clearly says he came to fulfill the law. There's no argument. He came to fulfill the law. He says in Matthew chapter 5. So if you fulfilled it, I don't have to do it. Ah, it's a highlighter. Well done. <laughs> can, can, I mean, am I, is this? It is quiet in this place. We've been talking about this for three, four weeks, man. You guys should be on this. When you say, okay, for instance, if you don't pay your taxes, what happens? You don't want to fool with Uncle Sam. Everybody knows that Uncle Sam will deal with you. He will. I just want you to think about that. We never said you don't give tithes. We say, did you pay your tithes? You never ask, well, do you, do you give your tithes? You don't say that. Why? Because we all understand under the law, tithe carried a consequence. So we know for a fact Jesus fulfilled the law, number one, 
where you say, well, I'm not satisfied with that. In a matter of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. I agree with you. Thank you for being a Bible scholar. Galatians chapter 3. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. What does he want? If he's redeemed it from me, you want to, go, want to go back and pick it up? You can if you want. But that's on you. Not on God. So I just want you to understand this. So, when they asked Jesus, render therefore to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. You must understand the distinction because under the grace given, we are not paying God, we are giving. Amen. That's why we call it grace given. Yes. You're not making a payment under the penalty of a curse or punishment or consequence. You are given. Do you understand the distinction here? Right. Obligation, if you don't do it, you are in trouble. Yes. But gratitude, you do it because you've been blessed. You yes. do it because God has done something for you. Yes. You give it joyfully. You give it with pleasure. Yes. Now, am I saying you should not give 10%? No, I'm not saying that. You can give 10%. But you just understand that you are not under the law and you are not saying, um, Paying a tithe. You don't have to pay God anything. Yes. Can you imagine that? Here it sounds. I'm paying God. For what? What are you paying him for? Is it for the breath you breathe? The fact that you have legs? The fact that your hands work? What, what, are you, what payment are you making? At least I know when I'm paying for, for my car payment, I pay to drive the car. Correct. So what are you paying God for? Is it your children? Is it your wife, your husband? Wrong theology. Yes. Don't, don't let me get back on that. Let me just finish this thing, please. So Jesus was saying here, there are two governments. Caesar has a government and God has his own government. Are you hearing what I'm saying to you? Yes. Matthew 21, verse 21. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, the government of Rome. They have an established government. Right. You take care of government. Yes. And the things that are God's. What's the point I'm making? Point number one, we give out of the motivation of love. Point number two, we give out of responsibility. Responsibility. You give to Caesar. What belongs to Caesar? You pay your taxes. I won't mention these nations. There are nations where nothing works. <laughs> Many of us are familiar with nations where nothing works. Water don't work. Light does not work. Roads don't work. Hospitals don't work. School don't work. In fact, some of those nations, universities are on strike right now. And have been on strike for months. Why? Because... They have not understood you must give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. People don't pay taxes. Are you guys hear what I'm saying? Yes. People don't pay taxes. But for some crazy, bizarre reason, they expect things to work. These things will not come out of heaven to the earth. In this particular nation I'm thinking of, Maybe one or two states have a tax system. 
But everybody expects good roads. They expect water to run. They expect to turn the switch and lights come on. How? How would it happen? People don't pay taxes. Can you find the people? We have no, they have no system to find the human beings. Let me leave that alone. <laughs> so we're back to the United States. We're back to the United States. You give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. What does that do for us? You have roots to drive on. Lights. If your light blink for 30 seconds, you are calling it. What happened to my light? What's going on? My lights are not going on. Why? You've given the scissor what belongs to scissor. If your water don't run, you, you have you call. If your roads are bad, you can complain. You say the roads are too tiny. Expand the roads. Add more lanes. Yeah, you can do that. Why? You know what? You pay scissor. As people, more and more people are moving into our communities, they're building more schools. You ever wonder how that happens? Because for every homeowner, whether you have a child or not, you are paying school taxes. And with that tax, all these things are generated. So Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. There's a responsibility. If you're going to live in a community, you sow to that community. Now he flips the coin. You see, because, because there are two governments. There's the government of Rome and there's the government of God. Just how we all easily understand now that we must give to Caesar so our schools can run, water can run, lights can be turned on, roads are working, hospitals, you go to ER. Have you ever imagined you go to ER in America, they say the doctors are on strike? <laughs> <laughs> Never heard of it. Some of these nations, you better be careful. You go to the hospital, to the ER, they say, doctors? Ah, we've not seen a doctor in the last six months. Yes. True story. You send your kids to school, you don't know when they will graduate. Toshe, in a few months, you'll be graduating. Uh, on Friday, uh, Olalu will be working. We graduate. We all know, they start, they will finish. Some of these nations, the only thing we know when they start, you say, congratulations, you are starting. <laughs> God help you if you, know, you, you become 90 years old when they, when they graduate. Yeah. Why? Because there's no Caesar system. So Jesus was saying, pay the government. But at the same time, give to God. The government of God, what belongs to God. Responsibility. How can we have a community like this? And we don't take care of it. Because Caesar will not do this. The liberals have already established separation of state and church. So Caesar will not help us turn the lights on in the church. They won't help us turn on the, uh, the, the water. They won't help us with internet connection. They won't help us clean the building. They won't help us fix the AC. Caesar will not do that. But we say we are the people of God. Ah, you are going to like me now. Hallelujah. There's an element of responsibility upon all of us Amen. to take care of what God has given us. Yes. Ah, people say the children's ministry, we need, they need air conditioning. Ah, no, we, we do. Since I will not do it. It's upon you and I to understand what we need and take care of what we need. 
Oh, there are many things I'd like to see happen here at Work Fine. Many, many, many things. But how is it going to happen? By the collective responsibility of each person that's a part of this church to know, you know what? I have a part in this house, and therefore, I will do my part. You just can't come here and suck the air out of the room. <laughs> and then you get online and start complaining. No. We own it together. We are all stakeholders. And therefore, we give to God what belongs to God and to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. It's amazing how nobody has to tell us about Caesar. We take care of Caesar. So I want to challenge us. As we give gracefully, we must not only take care of Caesar, we must also take care of God. And taking care of God begins by taking care of the house of God. Ah. Just so I can close this message and really close it, so I don't have to come back and do it again. No, seriously. There are several reasons we give to the house of God. Several reasons. Number one, so that the gospel can be propagated. Yes. Yes. Now, I've said it before to you guys in this, in this room. You'll be grossly mistaken if you look at the numbers of people that are sitting here and think this is the ministry. Grossly mistaken. We are reaching people far and near. Just this last week, I spoke to a pastor in Accra, Ghana, for which my heart is bleeding as I'm standing here. I cannot give you guys the details of it. Not yet. The incredible work the guy is doing. Yes. And the help he needs to continue to do it. Yeah. Touching and reaching people that we cannot reach. Yes. But because we are connected in the body of Christ, there's, a, there's, 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 there's this uh, reality of knowing that we are connected and therefore we have to carry the burdens of one another. Yes. In Luke chapter 8, give me Luke chapter 8 verses 1 to 3. Luke chapter 8 verses 1 to 3. Now it came to pass afterward that he went through every city and village preaching and bringing the glad news of the kingdom of God and the twelve were with him. And certain women, say what? Say certain women. Certain women. I thank her for women. I really thank her for women. That's what the devil wants to destroy women. Yeah. Certain women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom had come seven demons. Go on. And Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod, Stewart, and Susanna, and many others. What did they do? They provided for him from their substance. Hold it. They paid their tithes? No, ma'am. They didn't pay tithes. They provided for him out of their substance. Under the law, Jesus could not receive tithes. He was not a priest. But he received offerings to carry out his ministry. And these offerings were given by certain women whose names were mentioned. I pray in Jesus' name that as you continue in your diligence and your faithfulness in giving to the work of God, God will have your name in remembrance. Amen. 
When these women were giving, they had no idea that God would mention their names in the Bible. And now we have the record of their giving. Folks, don't, 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 don't think of the minimum. 10% is minuscule. Think higher. What will God have you to do to promote the frontiers of his kingdom? So we receive offerings in the church because the, the gospel must be preached. Jesus did it. And you just saw it right there. Secondly, and I'm, this is my last and final closing. Secondly, no, seriously, secondly, secondly, those that preach the gospel, the Bible says they should also live by the gospel. They said that a workman is worthy of his hire. Not only do we give to ministry so that the work of God can go forward, I'm talking about the gospel itself, but those that work in the ministry, preachers, pastors, administrators, worship leaders, all of this is supported through the giving of the community of faith. God forbid that all of you are doing so well, you're making six figures, getting promotions every six months, 3%, 5% promotion, and you're happy, you go home, and the people that minister the word of God to you, they are barely making it. That'd be a shame. Ah, you, guys are, you, guys are, you guys are done with me. That'd be pitiful. That'd be pitiful. That would not be right. So we give out of motivation of love, and we give out of the motivation of our responsibility. Yes. Let me just leave it there right That's enough. I've given you enough for one day. Yes. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just thank you for your word that has come to us. Thank you for the power of it. Thank you for your love wherein you've loved us and the benefits that we received. How you forgive our iniquities. You heal our diseases. You redeem our soul from destruction. You, satisfy, you crown our heads with your tender loving kindness and your mercies. You give us good things. You satisfy our mouth with good things. And you kneel our youth with ego. God, I pray that each one of those benefits will find manifestation in every life under the sound of my voice in the name of Jesus. God, that we will all return to our first love. The deep recognition of how much you loved us. We return there, Lord Jesus. That's where it starts. Help me, God, to ever, never forget how much you love us. And as a result, Lord Jesus, I thank you for everyone in this body. How we give ourselves totally, completely unto you. Unreservedly. And as a result of giving ourselves to you, we give of our substance according as to how you've prospered us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for helping us with the collective responsibility of propagating your gospel, your message, and supporting the ministry. I thank you that you empower us, you enable us, we receive the grace that was upon the Macedonian church and more. And we declare your glory in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. Praise God.